All right, open your Bibles up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, if you have one of uh, our uh, black Bibles, it's on page 950. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. We're going to see Jesus heal a, a blind man, okay? This is, one, uh, 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 this is the fifth of the seven signs that John records in his gospel. Now, if you look at the heading in your section there on your Bible, it might tell you that it's the sixth sign, but the headings, the, the bold headings in your Bible, those are not inspired the way the word uh, is that John wrote, actually wrote, okay? They don't carry the same authority that, that John's words do because they weren't inspired. These are headings to help us, just like chapter and verse numbers were added later for organization. So are the headings. So um, some Bible scholars and teachers separate the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water as two separate signs. Others put those together as one sign. Uh, I've made the argument before I, I fall into that latter category because what it does is ultimately puts Jesus and his own resurrection as the seventh and final sign. And what, what does John put the signs in his gospel for? In fact, he gives us the reason why right after he tells us about Jesus' resurrection. He says, these were written so that you may... Uh, uh, I've said this how many times? Help me out. So that you may believe, right? That's what I thought it was. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. How can we have life in his name? Well, because he is the risen and living Savior, right? So, uh, regardless of whether you want to call this the fifth or the sixth sign, the purpose is still the same. It is uh, to, to show the reader Jesus' true identity and prompt belief, prompt faith in Christ. In a number of ways, Jesus' healing of the blind man here parallels the account in chapter 5 of Jesus healing uh, the, the disabled man on the Sabbath. And, and we'll also see, though, several differences between these two men that Jesus healed, and those differences will show us the necessity of responding to Jesus' work by believing in him, okay? In chapter 8, Jesus called himself the light of the world, and this morning we're going to see through the eyes of a blind man and learn what happens when the light of the world shines into the uh, hearts of those who are walking in darkness. So I want to pray and ask God to help us see that, and then we'll dig in. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things here in your word this morning. We understand that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we pray that by your word and your spirit, you would unveil the gospel and shine in all our hearts and give us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ so that unbelievers become believers this morning. And believers are conformed more into the precious image of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his glorious name. Amen. Fanny Crosby was a hymn writer uh, who uh, lived in the 1800s, mostly in the 1800s, who wrote somewhere between eight and 9,000 hymns. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's, that's so many, Right? She also lost her sight when she was a baby because of medical malpractice. Some guy pretending to be a doctor squirted her eyes with some sort of mustard sauce, and she lost her 
site. So if anybody prescribes that for anything for you, say no, okay? When she was older, people would express their sympathy about her blindness and maybe if, if she told them the story of how it came about. But she would always reply this way, if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden the, my sight will be that of my Savior. I love that. That's so good, isn't it? It was through her physical blindness that Fanny came to know and depend on Jesus Christ. Yes, she may have been blind physically, but she was not blind spiritually. Spiritual blindness is deceiving. Why? Because most of the time, those who are spiritually blind can physically see. Sometimes people who can't physically see also can't spiritually see. Physically blind people, however, know that they're blind. They know that they're physically blind, right? They can't actually see. They have a daily tangible reminder there's darkness. But spiritually blind people need to be shown their blindness. You don't have to tell a physically blind person they're blind. But spiritually blind people need to be shown their blindness. So here's what Jesus is going to show us this morning. And this is the main point of our, of our text and our, and our message. Jesus gives sight to those who know that they're blind, and he blinds those who think they can see. Jesus gives sight to those who know that they're blind, and he blinds those who think that they can see. John's account of this historical event is going to play out for us this morning in three parts, okay? First, the healing of physical sight. Then, the struggle or the battle for insight. And then, finally, the need for spiritual sight. So let's look at the healing of physical sight, part one. Chapter nine, verses one and two. As he was passing by, Jesus was passing by, he saw a, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the time frame here is somewhat ambiguous, but the theme of this uh, chapter is tied to the festival of shelters, and so they probably passed by this blind man either near the end of the festival or shortly afterward. If you remember at the end of chapter 8, uh, the, the Jews picked up stones to throw at Jesus, and he left the temple, so it's probably somewhere on his way walking out that he passed this blind man. John says that this man was blind from birth. For his whole life, up to that point, this man had been unable to see things that you and I take for granted every day, right? The mixed hues of a sunset sky, the dimpled grin of a giggling child, right? The synchronized wing beats of a flock of birds, all things that we look at and don't even give a second thought of. If we were to pass by this man who was blind from birth today, we probably would have compassion on him and, and wonder about the difficulties and the challenges he's faced. We, we might express sympathy toward him like many did for Fanny Crosby. When the disciples passed by this man, they wondered who was to blame for his blindness. Whose fault is it, Jesus, his or his parents'? It was a common belief in that day that blindness and other ailments were God's way of punishing people for specific sins that they had committed. Because this man uh, was blind from birth, 
the disciples assumed that either he committed a sin as a baby while in the womb, or that his parents had committed some kind of sin that then he was getting the punishment for, like some sort of weird Jewish karma. Now, we are prone to think this way sometimes as well, aren't we? We may not look at a blind person and assume that his blindness is either his fault or his parents, but sometimes, sometimes we see suffering in someone's life and we just wonder, we just sort of assume that it's a consequence of something that they did wrong. It's not wrong to say that suffering is generally a result of sin, but we need to be careful not to assume that suffering is specifically a result of sin. Here's what I mean by that. All suffering is evidence of the sinful fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Their rebellion brought the curse of suffering and death into the world. Corruption is everywhere, and we suffer because of it. But a person's individual suffering is not always a direct consequence of his or her own sin. That's what Job's friends accused him of, and they were wrong. Rick, you mentioned that in the announcement. Job didn't do anything wrong. In fact, it was because he was walking in faithfulness to God that all of those trials came on him. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Jesus tells them, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he left, washed, and he came back seeing. Sometimes, sometimes, suffering is a direct consequence of a, perp- of a person's sin. It seems that that was the case back in chapter 5. If you remember with the disabled man, when Jesus went and found him, after he healed him, he said, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Je- Jesus is never wrong in his ass- assessment of the human heart. If he tells this man to stop sinning or something worse might happen to you, there's a reason why. It seems like he was connecting that with the man's ailment. But Jesus made it clear that this was not the case here with this blind man. Jesus wasn't saying that this man or his parents were sinless, but Jesus was saying that this man's blindness was not a direct consequence of any sin that he had committed or his parents had committed actually quite the contrary. He said this man's blindness came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. His suffering was not punishment for his sin. His suffering was preparation for God's glory. When we see suffering in a person's life, we can get so tunnel visioned about the why that we overlook the who. While sometimes it is necessary and it is helpful to consider whether or not sin might be contributing to a a person's suffering, David prays, Lord, help me. Uh, In Psalm 19, he he says, "Who who, who can know his secret sins? Protect me from those and protect me from my willful sins. We need to consider, is there something that I have done to bring this upon myself? But that's not always the case. Instead of wondering whether or not 
all the time that sin might be contributing to a person's suffering. We ought to spend less time looking for those reasons and more time looking for the, the redemption in the situation, the, the, in the situations of suffering. The question that we should ultimately be asking, yes, we can ask those, is, is there sin involved here? But we need to move beyond that and not just linger there over and over and over. We need to say, not all the time, what did this person do? But what is it that God might be doing? What is it that God might be doing? How is he working in this situation for the good of his people and the glory of his name? Jesus told his disciples, the time to work is right now while I'm still with you. He says, while it's, while it's daytime. He's the light of the world, remember? He is the daylight. He is the daylight in the darkness. But night was coming. The shadow of the cross was looming. It was growing larger and larger. It wouldn't be much longer before the light of the world would be crucified by those who continued to walk in darkness. His suffering would be a direct result of their sin and ours. But that time had not yet arrived, and Jesus still had work that his heavenly Father had sent him to do. So he spit on the ground, and he made some mud, and he spread it on the blind man's eyes, and he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. This may seem a bit odd at first. Like, I mean, he could have just said, hey, see. And the guy would have been fine, right? But he did this. And there's some significant reasons, there's some significant things here that we don't want to overlook. What did God make man out of back in Genesis 2? The dust of the ground. What did Jesus make mud out of right here? The dust of the ground. He spit into the dirt and he made mud. This is creation language. Even more so, this is new creation language, recreation language. Jesus was restoring something that had been corrupted. He was restoring this man's sight that was corrupted by the curse of, in the Garden of Eden. How much more so then has he come to restore the human heart that has corrupted sinners and make us new creations in him? Bringing this man's sight back is just the tip of the iceberg of the recreative work of Jesus Christ. He told the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This was the pool that, that the priests went and gathered up water from during the festival of the shelters. John uses or, or tells us that this word Siloam means sent. Multiple times throughout John's gospel already, we've seen Jesus refer to himself as the one whom God sent, right? He is the sent one from heaven. This is a reminder yet again of that reality that Jesus himself was sent to wash sinners and make them clean and give them true sight. In Isaiah chapter 8, the waters of Siloam are mentioned as a metaphor for God's faithful care that his people rejected. Isaiah warned, in, in all of Isaiah, he warned the, uh, the people of God uh, th that God was coming to judge them because of their rebellion against him. But Isaiah also prophesied that the coming Messiah would be a light to the nations who would open blind eyes. And that was something that no one else had ever done. This was to be a defining characteristic, a, 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 an identifying mark of the Messiah. Jesus sent this blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam, and so the man left. He washed, and he came back seeing. I love that. But it wasn't the mud 
It wasn't the pool that opened his eyes. It was Jesus himself. The Messiah has come. He's here. This is what John wants us to see right here in that. This was not a metaphor. Jesus the, the, was not a metaphor for God's faithful care. He was the literal embodiment of it. After the blind man came back seeing, people started to notice, and then that leads us to the next part of the story, the struggle for insight. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. Where am I at? I looked up. Verse 10. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, and he spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. And when I went, or so I went, and I washed, and I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. I think this, this part is, is a pretty comical scene here. Don't you love how, like, he's standing right there, and his neighbors are talking about him, but not talking to him? They're just having this conversation, like, I think that's the guy. It's, no, it's, that can't be him, right? He's, he's, he's not blind anymore. And the whole time he's standing there like, guys, uh, it's me. Uh, it's me. Now, in their defense, it wasn't just that his eyes were healed. His whole demeanor had changed. As a blind man in that time, his whole means of living would have been through begging. That's how they knew him, as a beggar. Isn't this a guy that was, used to sit begging? Now, suddenly he was walking around among them, looking them face to face, with his newly opened eyes, and he wasn't begging, except to get them to listen to him, right? When they finally accepted that this was the same guy that they had been seeing for so long, they still couldn't reconcile how a man who had been blind his entire life from birth could now suddenly see. They'd never heard of this before. Nobody's ever done this before. But at least they didn't guess that part among themselves. They were smart enough to ask him. And so uh, he confidently and concisely told them the facts. The man called Jesus made mud. He spread it on my eyes and he told me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. If you remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the disabled man, that man didn't even bother to find out Jesus' name until the, the Pharisees came and started threatening him. He just walked away. Here in verse 12, the neighbors asked this man where Jesus was, not because they were skeptical, but because they wanted to see the one who made him see. But the man didn't know where Jesus was. Why? Well, Jesus sent him away with his eyes covered with mud. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He didn't know where Jesus went, right? He was blind when he left Jesus and went to the pool of Sol Siloam. He said, I washed and I came back seeing. I don't know where he is. Look at verse 13. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. That, that day, uh, the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. At that point, we hear the dun-dun-dun music, right? 
And then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed, and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking about Jesus, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. I love how John calls him the man who used to be blind here. Don't you love that? Blindness no longer defined this man. It was no longer an identifying characteristic for him. This is a good reminder for us that when Christ intervenes in our lives, we are no longer defined by what we once were. This is grace. We can freely say what we used to be because that's no longer who we are. Our identifying characteristics are now connected to Jesus and his work in our lives. Think this week, what did you used to be? that you are no longer now because of Jesus. This man's neighbors brought him to the Pharisees, not maliciously. They weren't accusing him of of anything or telling on him. They were curious and they were looking for an explanation. In that day, Pharisees were prominent leaders in the local synagogues, which were essentially Jewish uh, churches there. They they did religious things and they also did political things there. And so these people were going to go to their church leaders and see what they thought of the situation, similar to a way a person today might hear something and then go to their church elders and ask, hey, what do you think about this? These people wanted to understand the situation from a biblical worldview, from their own scriptures. They wanted these teachers of the law to help them understand this. The only problem is the Pharisees were more concerned with their own traditions than they were actually with God's word. And when they heard about the man who used to be blind and that he was healed on the Sabbath, they began to interrogate this man because they knew about a man who did stuff on the Sabbath and they didn't like that guy, right? Jesus healed the disabled man on the Sabbath back in chapter 5. Remember how the Pharisees came up with 39 different categories of things that they defined as work so that they were sure not to do any of those things on the Sabbath? Scripture was quiet about those things, but they made them very specific. One of those things was, uh, categories was carrying uh, something from one place to another, which is why they got mad that Jesus told the disabled man back in chapter 5 to pick up his mat and walk. They saw him carrying his mat on the Sabbath, and they were upset. Another category they considered forbidden work on the Sabbath was kneading, like kneading dough for bread or, or spitting on the ground and kneading mud from saliva. So when a man, or when the man who used to be blind told them that Jesus put mud on his eyes, the Pharisees completely ignored the fact that the man washed and could now see, and instead they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath because he made mud. This man is not from God, they said. But not all of the Pharisees were convinced of that. We're, we're seeing this more and more As we go through the gospel, people are trying to figure Jesus out. And even among the religious leaders, there's differing opinions. Some of them said, this man is not from God. But others said, how can can a sinful man perform such signs? Some of these Pharisees, it seems, were beginning to see what they had been blind to all along. 
the people came to the religious leaders to get their opinion, and they were divided on it. And so the religious leaders turned to the man to get his opinion. After all, he was the one whose eyes were supposedly opened, right? What do you say about him? He opened your eyes. This man was not a religious leader. He wasn't a theologian. He was a blind beggar who wasn't blind anymore, and he was beginning to see who Jesus truly and really was. He said Jesus was a prophet, which is true, but not the whole truth. There was more that this man needed to see about Jesus and that everyone else still needed to see about Jesus. Let's keep going. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe this about him, about the man, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. After the Pharisees interrogated the man who used to be blind, they thought the whole thing was a sham. They didn't believe that he actually had been born blind. And so they called his parents in and they began to interrogate them. The intimidation factor is uh, is off the charts here, right? The religious leaders had used, I'll say abused their authority to threaten people. If anyone said that Jesus was the Messiah, you can't come to the synagogue. You're banned. That'd be like me telling you that you can't come to church because you believe the gospel. It's absurd, right? But it shows the depth of spiritual blindness that these Pharisees had. Like the disabled man who was healed back in chapter 5, these parents tried to avoid getting caught uh, up in the wrath of the religious leaders. When they talk to the disabled man, they're like, why are you carrying your mat? He's like, this guy told me to do it, right? The parents are like, hey, ask him. He's of age. The irony here is that even though the parents passed the buck back to their son because they were afraid of the Pharisees, they actually validated the miracle that Jesus had performed. Why? They confirmed that this, was, this man was their son, and they confirmed that he had actually been born blind and that he could now see. The Pharisees sought to discredit the man, but now they had undeniable witness, two-witness testimony that validated the man's claim. Backfired on him. They could no longer deny that this man was blind and could now see. His own parents said so. The already frustrated Pharisees grew even more frustrated after they questioned the man's parents, and so they shifted the interrogation back to him. Look at verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. The Pharisees had reached a boiling point here. They commanded the man, hey, listen, God is the witness. Tell us the truth because God knows and we know and you know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25, the man answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. 
The man was not yet fully confident in his knowledge of Jesus. If you, watch, if you, if you look through this passage, go back through this this week, and look at all the statements this man makes about Jesus. They get more and more specific and more and more uh, 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 faith-driven as you go further and further along in the story. He wasn't yet fully confident in his knowledge of Jesus, but what he did confidently declare here is what every believer can and should confidently declare. Even as we continue to grow in our understanding of all that Christ is, one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. Now I can see. When Jesus opened this man's eyes physically, the man could see the world around him for the first time. Imagine that. I mean, close your eyes for a second. Think about what's in the room. You might be able to remember a few things, but, but even when you open them back, you, you have to reorient yourself. You can open them up. This man had been blind from birth. All he had ever done was heard and smelled and touched things and tasted things. Now he can see them. He has to make sense of what he's seeing. You still need to understand what his eyes were looking at. Similarly, when Christ opens our eyes spiritually, we see things as they really are for the first time, but we continue to grow then in our understanding of what we now see. But one thing we understand without a doubt, it's that Jesus is the one who gave us sight, right? Let's keep going. Verse 26. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't even know where he's from. This is an amazing thing. Oops, I went one verse too far. Hold on. It is an amazing thing, but we'll get to that in a second. These Pharisees were fixated on how instead of who, right? And, and not only were they spiritually blind, but they were also spiritually deaf. They refused to see who Jesus truly was, and they refused to listen to this man's testimony. They refused to believe. We need to remember and understand that sin is dangerously deceptive. It's dangerously deceptive. It blinds us to what is true, and it persuades us to believe what is false. It actually makes us liars who have convinced ourselves that we are telling the truth. The man who used to be blind seemed to be gaining confidence more and more as he went around and around with the self-convinced Pharisees. He knew that they couldn't deny the miracle, but they were still foolishly fighting hard to deny Jesus, and so... He had a little fun with it, right? Called him out with a little bit of sarcasm. Why do you want to hear how he opened my eyes again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? That struck a nerve. These men were supposed to be distinguished leaders in the synagogue, and all of that went out the window, and they let their immaturity get the best of them. Remember when you were a kid and somebody called you something that you didn't like and you responded with the greatest comeback of all time? I know you are, but what am I? Right? 
This is essentially what the Pharisees said to the man who used to be blind. We're not that sinner's disciples. You are, right? We're disciples of Moses because we know that God has spoken to Moses. We don't know where this sinner is from. They'd made up their mind already that Jesus was not from God because they thought that Jesus clearly refused to keep the Sabbath even though it was actually their man-made traditions that he refused to keep. Their own sin was blinding them from what was true and convincing them not only to believe what is false, but, that, but then to assert that as the truth. They claimed to have insight, but it was the man who used to be blind that showed his understanding and his amazement at their persistent foolishness. He essentially told them, imagine that. You guys can't see a thing, but I can the man may have been physically blind from birth, but he still had common sense, he, enough to see that they were uh, wh- what they were clearly turning a blind eye to. Some of the Pharisees had assumed that Jesus was a sinner who had broken the Sabbath, and so they concluded that he couldn't have come from God. And then in verse 31, the man agreed that God would, wouldn't grant a sinner the ability to perform the signs that Jesus had performed but instead foolishly, uh, uh, foolishly denying that Jesus came from God, the man wisely concluded that Jesus must have come from God because only someone who came from God could do these things that Jesus was doing, including and especially the thing that no one else had ever done, opening the eyes of the blind. I actually do need to read that. I stopped in verse 29. I think I missed a part, maybe. Maybe not. I just need to read to the end. They ridiculed him. You're that man's, Mo- you're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. Verse 30. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. There it is. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And you are now trying to teach us? And then they threw him out. Pharisees had heard enough, right? And they went into to what we might amount to a childish temper tantrum in verse 34. How, how dare you, a low-life beggar, Try to teach us about God's ways. You were born entirely in sin. That's the accusation. They'd been outwitted by a blind man and they were outraged because of it. They should have seen this healing as a sign of the Messiah's arrival. The man himself said it. Nobody's ever heard of this before. But they were so offended by the man who used to be blind that their rage blinded them to the truth. They didn't even realize that by accusing him of being born of sin, they were actually acknowledging the fact that he was born blind. Even though they had already made it clear back in verse 18 that they didn't believe that to be true. They can't even keep their own story straight. In their blind rage, they threw him out of the synagogue. This man didn't suffer blindness because of his sin, but he did suffer persecution because of his association with Jesus. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should expect to be persecuted too when... Not if, but when we encounter opposition because of our association with Jesus, we should not be surprised by it. If we are surprised, 
it's because we've turned a blind eye to what God's word clearly teaches. In John 15, Jesus will tell his disciples, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. It hates you. We should expect to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. We've been comfortable for a long time, but we don't need to fear when suffering comes because Jesus will also tell his disciples in John 16, I've told you these things for this reason, so that in me you might have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Why? Because it hates you. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. How did Jesus conquer the world? By dying on the cross for sinners and rising from the dead. See, he suffered the greatest opposition and persecution on our behalf when the religious leaders called uh, for his execution in a blind rage and when the Roman officials did nothing to stop it even though they could clearly see that Jesus was totally innocent. But even as Jesus suffered the sinful wrath of men, he also suffered the righteous wrath of God who never turns a blind eye to sin, but always, always, always punishes it justly. Not one sin will go unpunished. And in his great love for us, God the Father sent God the Son to take our place on the cross, to take that punishment for us. And in his great love, God the Son willingly took our sin and our punishment on himself so that we could be forgiven of our sin, be given his righteousness, and be reconciled to God the Father forever. And after Jesus died on the cross, they put his body in a tomb, and they rolled a stone over the entrance. The eye of the tomb was closed then on the third day, the eye opened, and the light of the world walked out. The sent one became the resurrected one who had conquered sin and death and the devil and the world. And now everyone who trusts in him are conquerors with him because we have eternal life that no amount of opposition or persecution could ever take away from us. Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home right? The man who used to be blind suffered opposition and persecution from the Pharisees, but he didn't fear them like his parents did because he had the insight that the Pharisees claimed to have, but really didn't. And that brings us to the final part of the story. Look at verse 35, the need for spiritual sight. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked, Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do, who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, are we blind too? Or we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see... Your sin remains. And we haven't heard from Jesus since he told this man to go wash the mud off of his eyes in the pool of Siloam. After Jesus healed the disabled man back in chapter 5, he found that man and he warned him to stop sinning before something worse happened to him. Here, after this man was healed, came back seeing, Jesus found the man and instead of warning him, he said, what? 
do you believe in the Son of Man? He wasn't asking the man if he believed that the Son of Man existed. He was asking the man if he trusted in the Son of Man. And the man who used to be blind but can now see said, point him out and I'll believe him. You tell me where he is. And I love Jesus' reply. If this is not a beautiful picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. Jesus said, you have seen him. Isn't that amazing? You have seen him with his newly unblinded eyes. This man was beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The son of man, the Messiah. Jesus had opened this man's physical eyes and Jesus had opened this man's spiritual eyes. Just as he had with the outcast Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus revealed himself plainly to this blind beggar and he changed his heart. And without hesitation, the man professed his belief in Jesus and worshiped him. Both the disabled man in chapter 5 and the blind man here in chapter 9 were healed physically, but only one of them was healed spiritually. And that was the one who responded to Jesus in faith. Faith is necessary. How will you respond to what you've seen and heard this morning? Don't overlook what Jesus said next. I'll read it again. Jesus said, verse 39, I have come into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will, and those, that those who do not see will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin, but now that you say, we see, your sin remains. The healing of the blind man is really a, a, a peripheral view if you will, in this chapter. The central focus here is ultimately the Pharisees who were groping around in the darkness for answers that they wanted to hear while completely turning a blind eye to answers that they were given. It's a clear display of spiritual blindness. The Pharisees thought that they could see because they had the law and they relied on their interpretations of it. They thought that they could gain righteousness for themselves through their obedience to their traditions because they thought that they were obeying the law itself. But the law pointed to Jesus and they rejected him, right? Remember what he told them? If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. And as he told the Jews back in chapter six, he said, you've seen me and yet you do not believe so it's true here with the Pharisees. They could see Jesus physically, but they were unable to see him spiritually. If they were aware of their spiritual blindness, Jesus said, then they wouldn't have the sin of unbelief because they would see their need for him. But because they didn't think that they had need, because they say we can see, their sin remained. When light shines in the darkness, it does one of two things. It either helps people see or it blinds them. You ever been in the dark and then some, suddenly somebody turns on the flashlight and it just happens to be pointing right at your face? But when it's pointed down and you can see where you're going, there's a difference, right? Same light, same darkness. It helps some see, it blinds others. Those who see by the light are the ones who know that they're in the dark and those who are blinded by the light are the ones that think they can see just fine without it. Which one are you? 
Do you know your need? Do you see your spiritual blindness? If so, then recognize this as a grace of God and believe in the one who opens the eyes of the blind. No one else has ever done that before. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you think you're fine without Christ, please understand that, that confidence does not equal sight. The Pharisees were confident But Jesus told them that their sin remained because they were confident in the wrong thing. If you remain in the sin of unbelief, then the righteous wrath of God remains on you. John's made that clear in his gospel multiple times. Why not put your confidence then in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God? Many of you have done that. And as believers, we need to remember that all sin is spiritually blinding. And even though that Jesus has rescued us from slavery to sin and removed God's wrath from us, he continues to rescue us from the power of sin that we still struggle with. Because we are not yet free from the presence of sin altogether, that means that we all have spiritual blind spots that remain in our lives. And we need God's word and God's spirit and God's church to help us see what we can't. Are you regularly welcoming these gifts of grace in your life? to help you see. There's no reason for any believer to hide in darkness when Christ has made you children of light. He's already freed you from condemnation. Go read Romans 8. Why not then take advantage of all the help he provides? Let me just say it this way. People walking in spiritual darkness don't ask for help. Christians ask for help. It is the very foundation of our faith, confessing our need for Jesus and running to him. Jesus gives sight to those who know that they're blind, and he blinds those who think that they can see. As followers of Christ, Jesus has opened our eyes to see our need for him, and he continues to help us see our need with increasing clarity as we see him with increasing clarity. And so may we walk then in total dependence upon the light of his grace as we freely and confidently proclaim this beautiful gospel reality. I was blind, and now I can see. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us the light of the world and giving us sight in him. And we pray exactly this, that you would help us to grow with clearer vision, looking at Jesus Christ, fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, and running with endurance the race set before us as your word lights our path. And as we do it together as your church, people that you have filled with your light and your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.